Did everybody get one of these handouts? All right, so as we begin today's Forerunners of the Faith lesson, I want us to first very briefly draw our attention to this handout that I'm holding up right now that each of you should have received. You'll notice there that there is a very, I want to say, I don't want to say poorly, probably a very average written uh, title there. That is my handwriting. If you've never seen my handwriting before, you're looking at it right now. So um, I wrote the title, Illustrating the Hypostatic Union. I just realized Thomas doesn't have one, so let me meander over there really quickly and grab a handout for Thomas. Here you go, my friend. Now, the reason you're holding this is because we have been talking about over the past couple of weeks the deity of Jesus Christ. Does everybody understand what we are referring to when we speak of the deity of Christ? Can somebody explain that to me very briefly? What is meant when we say the deity of Christ? Okay, that Jesus is... God, there you go, right? So, so deity. No, I know, I know some. Oh. Well. It does every time. Nope, it's okay. We maybe that'll maybe this will get some blood flow. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't fully process No, it's okay. Maybe this will get some blood flow. It's all good. So, the deity of Christ is referring to the fact that Jesus is God. And I don't know if there has been any specific questions on this subject here in the recent weeks, but I'm sure at some point in your mind, you have had the thought, wait a second, if Jesus is God... And Jesus also was a man. How in the world is that possible? Well, let me just be very candid. There he is. Hey, Wit. Um, Let me be very candid. You will never fully understand how that's possible. Uh, But there are categories that we can operate out of. And some of those categories are illustrated... On the handout that I've given to you, notice that handout. Good morning, Michael. If you notice that handout that I've given to you, you have both natures of Christ. You have his human nature. Good morning, Charlie. You have his human nature and his divine nature, and they terminate in the singular person of the Son. So, When we talk about Jesus, we're saying that Jesus is one person that has a true or a complete divine nature. He's eternal God. And he assumed a true or a complete human nature. So he's not two persons. He is one person with two natures. And as you see there on the diagram... There are two very important phrases 
referenced right on both sides of the person of the sun's circle. You see one phrase, neither dividing the person nor confounding the natures, meaning that we don't split the person of the sun in two by virtue of him having two natures, nor do we blend the natures together. Those natures retain absolute integrity. The divine nature never overlaps with the human nature in the hypostatic union, and the human nature never overlaps with the divine nature. So there's not a blending of the two natures. Each nature retains absolute integrity in the hypostatic union. Just to review, does everybody remember what we mean by the phrase hypostatic union? So the term hypostatic comes from the Latin hypostasis, meaning person. So personal union. And the person we're referring to here is, of course, Jesus, right? It's the personal union of the divine nature and the human nature of Christ. And then over there on the right side of the diagram, you see that the person of the Son acts through either nature. There are times in the Bible, in the New Testament, where Jesus is said to not know everything, right? Nobody knows the day or the hour when the Son of Man will return, Matthew 24, 36. So there's times where Jesus, it's said, he doesn't know something. There's times, though, end of John 2, it says Jesus knew what was in the heart of all men, and he did not entrust himself to them. So there's times where Jesus manifests omniscience in his earthly life and ministry. So in Scripture, your job as an interpreter of the Bible is to determine when is Scripture emphasizing one particular nature of Christ. Scripture goes back and forth in providing a multifaceted perspective on Christ whether it be in reference to his human nature or in reference to his divine nature. And, of course, at the very bottom of the, of the diagram, right beneath that illustration there, you see there are two columns. One column is describing the divinity of Christ. One column is describing the humanity of Christ. And there are some key Scripture references that go alongside those descriptions. I'm just going to read them out loud for the benefit of the listener. And, of course, you guys can see that right in front of you on your handouts. Uh, In reference to Christ's divine nature, his deity, he is worshipped. He was called Son of God. He is prayed to. He is sinless. He knows all things. He gives eternal life. All fullness of deity dwells in him. Okay? So there are clear references throughout the new testament where jesus is categorically portrayed as god but there's also many references in the new testament where jesus is categorically portrayed as man he's uh, jesus worshiped the father he was called man he was called son of man he prayed to the father he was tempted he grew in wisdom he died and he had a body of flesh and bones So what we find in the New Testament, specifically in regard to the hypostatic union, is that the eternal logos, the eternal word, became flesh. And though he 
became what he eternally was not, man. He did not cease to be what he eternally is, God. To crash course, a very um, brief and 30,000-foot flyover crash course of the hypostatic union, but nevertheless wanted to explain to you what I had uh, you guys receive upon walking in here this morning. Before we really get into the weeds of today's lesson, does anybody have any questions about what I have provided you with? And if that's where we need to you know, park today, if that's where we need to sit and, and think, we can do that. But I really want to make sure you guys understand the basics of Christology. Remember, Christology, ologies, study of Christ is Messiah, study of Messiah, study of Jesus. That is what we mean when we use the term Christology. Any questions about this? Just make sure you're tracking. Somebody explain to me what we mean by hypostatic union. That's perfect. Did everybody catch that? Hypostatic union equals the personal union of the divine and human natures of Jesus. Hannah hit the nail right on the head. Very good. Um, Okay, well, um, we have not yet prayed. We have also not yet read the key passage that corresponds with this portion of our Forerunners of the Faith curriculum. So let me pray. I do need a volunteer to read John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. After I pray, Hannah's going to take that. And then we're going to just jump right into our lesson, picking up exactly where we left off last week by looking at the question for group discussion before we begin to dive into a lot of scripture references. So I hope you brought your Bibles. I hope you're ready to read. That means everybody needs to participate today. I think there's some 40 passages that we're going to be looking to today, and I certainly can't read them all. So let me pray, and then Hannah's going to read John 1, 1 to 3, and then we're going to dive into our lesson. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we launch into the, the spring with daylight savings, uh, springing forward as it were. We're reminded that time is in your hands. And though we often grow weary and though we are dependent upon rest and rejuvenation in order to function in a, in a way that is at the best of our abilities, physically and intellectually and emotionally and even spiritually, Lord, you are the fullness of being. You are a perfect being. You never grow tired. Your understanding never grows dull. Your purposes never grow stagnant. You are always accomplishing your good and perfect purposes because you are eternal, God, sovereign, all-powerful, all-wise. And Lord, it is to you that we bow our knees in adoration. And it is to you that we wish to devote our lives, Lord, that we would be good and faithful servants in every domain of life that you call us into. And God, part of the means you use by your spirit to accomplish that end is studies such as these. Going to scripture, talking about your word, reflecting on theological realities that are taught therein. Lord God, we pray that today, as we continue to meditate on the deity of Christ, who is eternal God with you and your Holy Spirit, we pray, Father, that 
You would give us wisdom to accurately interpret the Bible verses that we're going to be encountering today. Give me wisdom to direct the course of the conversations. Give these students boldness to share any thoughts or questions they may have so that this would be as fruitful of a lesson as possible. We do commit this morning to you, Lord. May this be a Lord's Day that is pleasing in your sight, that is refreshing to us spiritually and physically, preparing us for a new week that you have ordained for us to live in. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Hannah, John 1, 1 to 3. Again, if you've got your Bibles, please be sure to follow along in every passage we read through today. It'll get you in the habit of seeing things in the text of Scripture for yourself. Very good. So, picking up where we left off last week, there are two questions associated with the verses that we just read together. First question is, what does it mean that God the Son is co-eternal with God the Father? So what are we saying there? Just think about the words. What does it mean to be eternal? Yeah, to exist forever, right? And then what, do, what do you think of when you think co? Together, right? So he's co-eternal. He is just as eternal as the Father is eternal. If I could say it like this, there's never been a time in which God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit was not. There was never a time when they were not. In fact, the Trinity existed before time even began. So you can't really even use time as an adequate category to describe how, quote-unquote, long God existed because time was a creature made by God with the rest of creation. So... We say that God the Son is co-eternal with God the Father. We're refuting what Arius taught. Remember what Arius taught? What did Arius teach about the Son? There was a time when the Son was not, right? Or born. Yeah, you could say born, I guess. He was created. There was a time when the Son was created. The, the phrase, though, very easy. We think of Arius, think this. There was a time when the Son was not. Okay? Co-eternality is saying there has never been a time when the Son was not. God simply is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and ever and ever. Now, uh, second part of the discussion question from last week, just to make sure we cover it. How does John 1, 1 to 3 relate to what happened at the Council of Nicaea? So that presupposes we remember what happened at that very important church council. What happened at the Council of Nicaea? The Trinity was, was like defined as, like, you have to believe in the Trinity in order to be Christian. Right? Yeah, the first definitive definition of the Trinity took place at the Council of Nicaea. And it was a direct rebuttal of what Arius was teaching, which was that there really is not a Trinity, because there really is not a eternal Son. He's, he's a glorious um, being. He is a powerful being. He's to be worshipped. Sure, he's our Lord and Savior. He used all the right terminology. But Arius thought that the Son was the first and greatest created being by God the Father. And as such, the Son is 
less than the Father. And that's a big, big no-no because the Word of God teaches otherwise. And really, if the Son's a creature, it's idolatry for a creature to worship a creature, right? So you can't even worship Him as, as we're called to worship Him if He's not God because we'll be committing the sin of idolatry. So these verses now, in light of that understanding... So the Council of Nicaea was the first time where the Trinity was really definitively understood and uh, the doctrine was, was really formulated in that context. How does John 1, 1 to 3 get to the heart of Jesus being co-eternal with the Father and as a result of being co-eternal, co-equal to the Father? Right? Because if he's co-eternal, he's co-equal. There's only one God and that one God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person has always existed with one another. Then that implies co-equality, right? So what does John 1, 1 to 3 seem to indicate in that vein? Yeah, right? Jesus, the Word was in the beginning with God. That, that's pretty self-explanatory, right? You can't get around that verse. Jesus has always existed with God. Um, And then look, verse 3. He's also active in creation. All things came into being through Jesus, and apart from Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. So not only is he co-equal and co-eternal with God, he's also co-creator, right? So what verse 3 is saying. So I think that just on the basis of this text alone, and we're going to look at many others today, it's quite clear that the Bible teaches co-equality and co-eternality in regard to Jesus' relationship with the Father. Does that make sense? Are you guys tracking with what I'm saying this morning? If you're not, it's okay. Like if you have questions, don't feel ashamed or embarrassed to ask your questions why we're here this morning. Okay, we'll move on now to Roman numeral three in our curriculum. Roman numeral three titled The Starting Place, Biblical Authority. Let me read a couple of sentences from Buznitz, and then I need a volunteer with a workbook to read the block quote contained beneath it. We are in lesson five. Ellie will take the block quote. Let me read these sentences. Why did the Christian leaders who gathered in Nicaea overwhelmingly affirm the doctrine of Christ's deity? Their primary starting point was the scriptures, and they saw this truth clearly taught in God's word. Along those lines, the 4th century church leader Gregory of Nyssa, who was a younger contemporary of Athanasius, explained in his conflict with the Arians that Scripture alone must be the determiner of such things. No council or church tradition would suffice. Now, although it wouldn't happen for about another 1,200 years or so, what is being stated right there that I just summarized? When we say that Scripture alone must be the determiner of such things, no council or church tradition would suffice, what little phrase have we been using to describe that reality. Think about 
Sola Scriptura. There you go, right? Scripture alone. Scripture alone is the ultimate standard, the ultimate authority for all matters pertaining to our knowledge of God, right? Our faith, knowledge of God, His Word, and then life as well. It's our ultimate standard for how we should live. So that is something, again, it's not a Reformation creation. This is something that guys were talking about as early as the 4th century. Look at the dates of Gregory of Nyssa in your workbook, if you have it with you today. He lived between the years 335 and 395 A.D. It's about 1,200 years before the phrase sola scriptura started being thrown around. So don't fall victim to the idea that the solas are just this Reformation construct In reality, they're based on Scripture, but you had other Christians in church history long before the Reformers came around who were confessing these truths. But with that being said, Ellie, go ahead and read for us that block quote from Gregory of Nyssa. If you've got your workbook, feel free to follow along, and then we're going to start jumping into some Scriptures here as well. Very good. That last sentence is so key. Let the inspired scripture then be our umpire, and the vote of truth will surely be given to those whose dogmas are found to agree with the divine words. In other words, scripture is our authority. That's what Gregory's saying in that excerpt there. And Buznitz just concludes uh, his little introductory section in Roman numeral three. He says. In the same way, we must look to God's word as the authoritative basis for what we believe. Christian leaders of the first few centuries of church history similarly examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. The truth of Jesus' deity permeates the scriptures. The following contains ten lines of evidence that affirm the doctrine of Christ's deity with corresponding biblical references. So for the rest of our time together today, we're going to look at 10 lines of biblical evidence for the deity of Christ. And what do we mean when we say the deity of Christ? Jesus is God, right? He's divine. All right, 10 evidences for Christ's deity. If you've got your workbook, you're going to be filling in the blanks. Everybody should have a Bible. We're going to get to work now. The first line of evidence, blank number one. Divine prophecy. Divine prophecy. Noted next to that. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah foretold that the Messiah would be, quote, mighty God. There are two scriptures that are provided there. You have the original prophecy from Isaiah in Isaiah 9, 6. And then in your workbooks and in my teacher's guide, Matthew one twenty three is cited, but I want us to read verses 18 to 25 of Matthew 1 
just to get the full flavor of what that passage is saying in the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. So, uh, can I get a volunteer to read Isaiah 9-6? I'll take the Matthew passage since it's a little bit longer. Michael had his hand up first. So, Michael's going to read for us Isaiah 9-6, and then I'm going to read its New Testament fulfillment in the Gospel of Matthew. Michael, whenever you're ready, buddy. Okay, let me read the New Testament passage. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And took Mary as his wife, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Okay, so one of the key passages there, you have Isaiah 9, 6, also in Isaiah 7, verse 14. You have one of the clear Old Testament expectations that the Messiah would be God, and the Messiah was ultimately predicted in the Old Testament through prophecy, and then in the New Testament we see the fulfillment of prophecy. Um, If you didn't have Old Testament prophecy, Jesus' significance really wouldn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Like when Jesus comes on the scene and there's no expectation of him coming, we really wouldn't have any context to understand the significance of Jesus coming onto the scene, would we not? So, evidence number one was divine prophecy of Christ's deity. Evidence number two, divine existence. Divine existence. And as noted next to that blank, Jesus explained that he was with the Father in eternity past before the world Began. Lots of text there. We've already read the passage in John 1, so we're not going to revisit that. Uh, who would like to take John 17.5? Hannah? Who would like to take John 6.62? Lily? Mac, you can take John 8.23. And I need somebody to take John 16.28 wit. Thank you, guys. And... Whenever you guys get there, Hannah is going to kick us off with a passage out of John 17. All right, do y'all remember what the context of that verse comes in? Jesus is 
doing what has been historically regarded by Bible interpretators as the high priestly prayer. He is hours away from being handed over to the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman officials who would arrest him, put him on trial, and lead him away to be crucified. So Jesus knows this. He's preparing for his impending crucifixion. And he is praying to God that he will be glorified through the work of redemption that Christ is about to carry out. Then he prays for his apostles that are with him. And then he prays for those who have not even yet come to faith. Jesus prayed for you and me in that garden in the hours leading up to his crucifixion. He prayed for those who would ultimately be saved, uh, not just in that generation, but in the generations to come. Now, when Jesus says, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was, well, if Jesus had glory with the Father before the world was, what does that seem to indicate? He was with the Father, which means he's God, right? Y'all follow that? If he was with the Father before the world was, seems to indicate that he is God by virtue of being with God, the Father. Now, uh, John 6, 62, who had that passage? Okay, and that's kind of in the middle of a conversation. I wish he would have given us some more uh, context there. Basically, John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, but he goes on after performing the miracle and starts teaching some really hard truths that particularly pertain to uh, the sovereignty of God. And they start getting upset with what he has to say. And in the midst of that dialogue there, he says, verse 61... Does what I have said cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Well, where was he before? He was with the Father in heaven. So he's saying, hey, I'm going back to where I originally was before the incarnation. It's a clear affirmation of his divine existence. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 23. John eight twenty three. Who had that one? He said to them, You are you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Very good, Mac. Thank you for reading that. So Jesus is saying, I'm from above. I'm not of this world. Guys, like Jesus, if he's not who he claimed to be, Jesus was psychotic. He literally is a lunatic. Like imagine being at the mall or anywhere. I mean, I just said the mall because that's the first place that came to mind. But just say you're like you're at the mall and some guy comes up to you. He's like, you know, you're from this world. I'm not of this world. I'm from above. You look at him and be like, dude, like, like what are you talking about? Like, no, seriously, like that. Don't ever let the just enormity of what Christ says throughout the Gospels grow mundane to you. Like, literally read them, and then, for the sake of argument, read them as if they're not true and say, you know, if this isn't true, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous that this man would say these things. 
if he's not who he claimed to be. Put yourself in the shoes of unbelievers sometimes. It'll make the Bible really come alive in terms of, this is what I confess. This is what Jesus taught. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. Very important to be mindful of that. Uh, John 16, 28, last text from this evidence. All right, again, going to the Father, leaving this world, right? Um, and he says again, going, I came forth from the Father. There's divine existence. And I'm going to the Father, right? There's a, there's a clear divine affirmation there. Y'all follow? Good deal. All right, number three. Evidence number three. The divine name. This might be one of my favorites, the divine name. How many of you guys have heard it said, Muslims love to do this, um, but how many of you guys have heard it said, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never said the words, I am God in the New Testament. Size heard it. He never, let me just say this, he never actually said the words, I am God. He never said that. He, but he just about said those words in every other possible way that would have actually made sense to those who were around him in those days. Mac? Uh, in a lot of times he said, I am he. Yeah, or I am, right? So we're going to talk about right here. Um, divine name, number three. By calling himself I am in John eight fifty eight, Jesus identified himself as Yahweh, the covenant name for God in the Old Testament. New Testament writers also take Old Testament texts about Yahweh and apply them directly to Jesus. Guys, there are a ton of passages here, so I need a lot of help. John 6.51, Ellie. John 10.9, Emma. John, um, and actually, Emma, you're going to take verses 9 to 11 of John 10. John 11.25, Sai. John 14.6, Hannah. John 15.1, Mac. Matthew 3, 3, Michael, I'll take Romans 10, 9 to 13. Lily, you can take Philippians 2, 10 to 11. And then 1 Peter 3, 14 to 15, Jacob. Like I said, this is going to be fun because we're going to look at a lot of scriptures today. A lot of scriptures. Whenever, um, Ellie, you're starting us off, right? Go ahead and read whenever you've got it pulled up. Now, who have you, how many of you guys remember, or, or who of you can remember, that um, in the Old Testament there was bread that came down? Do y'all remember? When, when did that happen? 20 years. Right? While they were doing their wilderness wanderings. The Israelites were doing their wilderness wanderings for 40 years so that a generation could die off before the next generation could enter the promised land. Now, what was the significance of the bread coming down? It's how they were fed, right? Don't overthink it. It's how they were fed. It's how they were sustained. It's how they were taken care of. Now, it's physical, right? Jesus is saying, hey, you know all that bread that came down from heaven back in the history of the Old Testament? I'm the true significance of that. He says, whereas that bread sustained their physical needs, I sustain your 
spiritual needs, your eternal needs. Think about, again, think about what the Jews, the Jews picked up stones later and, and said, you are a blasphemer because they recognize only God can make claims such as this. Now they were wrong about his identity. That's what is so significant about this. Jesus takes all these things from the Old Testament. He says, yep, I'm the fulfillment. I'm the one that pointed to so on and so forth. That's what he's doing here in John six fifty one. Okay, John 10, 9 to 11, Emma. Thank you. So there's seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Seven's the number of completion, and uh, there, there's a there's a seven distinct references where Jesus uses the Greek ego emi, which means I am. That is, and if you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when God reveals Himself as I am, He always in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, it's always ego emi. So there is a just one-to-one correspondence of Jesus identifying himself as that God who revealed himself throughout the Old Testament. He said, hey, I am he. That's me. Recognize me by my words and by my deeds. Um, John eleven twenty five. Yep, in verse 26, I wish they would have put that there. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Okay, again, I am the resurrection and the life. Man, what a, what a statement. What a statement. John 14, 6. Many of you might have this memorized. That's right. Don't ever let anybody tell you that Jesus was a very tolerant, good, moral teacher, even though he was mistaken about some things regarding his deity, he was still a good guy. Jesus, in that statement, says every world philosophy and religion that doesn't find its epicenter in me is wrong, and they will never see the Father. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter how sincere you are in your beliefs. It's not good enough. You will not see the Father. It's what he's saying there. Again, let the enormity of what Jesus said really grip you. This isn't just cute little bumper sticker sayings that he you know, said throughout the course of his earthly life mystery. Like These are profound, rich declarations that Christ made. Um, John 15, 1. Yeah, so throughout the course of the Old Testament and even in parables that Christ gave in the New Testament, Israel is regarded as a vineyard or as a vine, right? There's imagery there. Jesus is saying there, hey, you know the nation of Israel? I'm the true Israel. 
Just as those in the Old Testament had membership in the nation of Israel, so also in the New Testament through faith in me, they have membership in my kingdom. I'm the true vine. I'm the true Israel. Let that sink into your soul. It's good stuff. Matthew 3 3. Who had that one? Yeah, and this is, of course, regarding John the Baptist's ministry. But notice, notice what he does. He says, make ready the way of Yahweh. John the Baptist is going to reveal publicly Yahweh. Well, Yahweh, Old Testament, name of God, and Jesus is the one that John the Baptist revealed. Therefore, Jesus is Yahweh, right? God, that's right. Tracking with me. Okay, let me read the passage from Romans 10. Romans 10, verses 9 to 13. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who will call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And my friends, that is one of the most clear gospel promises you will ever read in the New Testament. So I say for you and the benefit of the listener, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior at this very moment, call out to him and faith. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. If you confess with your mouth, his lordship, and you believe that in your heart regarding his life, death, and resurrection, you'll be saved, you'll be forgiven of your sins, you'll be received into his heavenly kingdom. That is the gospel promise that the word of God makes to you, and I pray that all of us will have received that promise for ourselves. Philippians 2, 10-11. Very good. In the context of this passage, Paul's saying, he said, hey, you know, because Jesus humbled himself, took on flesh, and carried out the work of redemption, God is going to exalt him in his return in glory and in judgment. And when he returns in that exaltation, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him. Some will do it joyfully. His people will do it joyfully. But his enemies, those who are unbelievers, when they make that confession, they'll do it in terror and in dread because they'll be welcoming back their exalted judge. We'll be welcoming back our exalted Savior. Quite the antithesis. 1 Peter three fourteen and 15. Very good. Now, how many of you guys remember the significance of the 1 Peter 3 passage? 
1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. What are we talking about there? Very good. Man, we've quoted that passage probably 50 times in the last two years. I'm glad you all remembered. And what do we mean by apologetics? Defend the faith to non-believers. And then then what is the other thing that we like to do? I don't know if we like to do it, but we're called to do it. Polemics, yeah. And what does polemics mean? Yeah, right. Defending truth from falsehood or truth from error amongst those who self-identify as Christians, right? Two sides of the same coin. We're called to defend the faith. We're called to defend it against the error of unbelievers. We're called to defend it against the error of those who self-identify as believers. Very proud of you guys for being able to recall that. Very, very good stuff. Number four. Number four. Divine authority. Blank number four in your workbooks. Divine authority. Jesus claimed authority over the Sabbath and over the ultimate destinies of people. He also claimed the authority to forgive sins. Even Jesus' enemies recognize that this kind of authority belongs exclusively to God. Lots of texts. Matthew 12, 8. Who wants to take that one? Matthew 12, 8. Sai. Uh, Mark 2, 28. Ellie. Luke 6, 5. Emma. Uh, Michael, you can take John 8, 24. Luke 12, 8, 9. Lily. John 5, 22. Yours is Matthew 12, 8. Uh, Luke 12, 8, 9 was Lily. John 5, 22. Um, Jacob, I'll take John 5, 27 to 29. And then who wants to take a long one? Mark 2, 5 to 11. Mark 2, 5 to 11. Going once. All right. Wit, you got that one. All right. Whenever you're ready, sigh. Very good. Mark 2, 28. It's going to be very repetitive. Luke 6, 5. All right, well, let's pause there. What in the world is he talking about? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath? Let's start there. Day of rest, right? Stop everything. You've heard Brother Robert make reference to this several times in uh, Sunday morning sermons, if you've been paying attention. They still practice this very rigorously over in Israel to this day. So it's a day of absolute cessation of work, and there's all kinds of ceremonial and civil stipulations of the Sabbath that undergird it in the Old Testament. We don't have time to get into those. But Jesus is saying, remember, he performed miracles on the Sabbath, he healed on the Sabbath, he taught on the Sabbath. Um, And a lot of the Jewish religious leaders looked at that and they said, what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. And your disciples are following your example and breaking the Sabbath. What's wrong with you? You know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I can do whatever I want to do on the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath. I'm God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. If I want to heal 
I will heal on the Sabbath. Because you guys have missed the whole point of the Sabbath. And then many times Jesus will go into great detail. And you guys will go and you'll pull your ox that falls into a ditch out on the Sabbath, but you won't even go and help out your fellow brother. You know? You guys have all these really nitpicky rules and man-made traditions you've imposed on the Sabbath. You've turned it into a burden. You've completely missed the point of which the Sabbath was pointing to. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, but moving on, John eight twenty four. Unless you believe that I am he, or I am, you will die in your sins. You know what he's saying there? Unless you believe that I am Yahweh, the same Yahweh that revealed himself in the burning bush, the same Yahweh that revealed himself throughout the history of Old Testament Israel, unless you believe that I'm he, you will not have eternal life. You will die in your sins. Luke 12, 8 and 9. There you go. Just very cut and dry. You know, you either identify with me and be welcomed into my kingdom or you don't identify with me and, and you won't be welcomed into my kingdom. John 5.22 22. Yeah. And then I'll read verse 27 and 29. Father gave Jesus authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. So Jesus has the authority to judge. Last text, Wit, Mark 2, 5 to 11. So do you see the significance of that narrative? Notice that Jesus doesn't start, he doesn't start off by healing the man and then saying, your sins are forgiven. He goes to the biggest issue that man had. He says, hey, your sins are forgiven. And then, of course, everybody's sitting back. They were mistaken about his identity, but nevertheless, they're sitting back there and they're saying, you know, this guy, he's blaspheming because only God can forgive sins and we don't believe he's God. So we think that he's committing the sin of blasphemy. We think he's a mere man who is basically a lunatic, right? Well, guess what he says? He says, you know what? Let me show you why I am who I claim I am. Pick up your pallet and walk. 
I have the authority to forgive sins because I'm about to make this guy get up and be fully healed, thereby showing that I am God, that I do have this power, and you need to acknowledge me as God. You need to repent of your unbelief. It's a powerful, powerful narrative in the Gospel of Mark. Well, number five, and this will be where we have to draw our time today to a conclusion. We'll pick up next week where we left off. Number five, divine power. Evidence number five is divine power. And noted next to that blank, Jesus not only claimed divine authority, he exercised divine power. With nothing more than a word, he dominated demons, subdued nature, and eradicated disease. He repeatedly exhibited the power to do what only God can do. That's what I was just saying, really, in reference to Mark 2, 5 to 11. But let's look at these texts. Um, Man, there are some really long ones in here. Um, I'll take the two long ones from Mark. So I need a volunteer from Mark 3.11, Hannah. Luke 5, uh, that's kind of long too. Um, I'll take that one as well. Um, you can take the Luke 8, 22 to 25, Psy. Uh, seven verses in Luke 9. Who's a good reader? Wants to take nine verse, or seven verses? Lily? You're at Luke 8, 22 25. Um, Mark 1, 29 to 31, Emma? Uh, Lily? Or Emma? Oh. Oh, Emma, you're uh, Mark 1, 29 to 39, uh, 31, rather. Uh, Mark 1, 40 to 45. You want that one? Ellie, did you have your hand up? Okay. Mac, you can take Mark 8, 22 to 26. I'll take the long passages. Uh, Mark 1, 40 to 45. I'm going to read a lengthy... Intro to the Gospel of Mark, Mark 1, 2 to 27. Hold on to your seats. I'm going to be reading rather quickly. Read the whole first 27 verses of the Gospel of Mark. Here we go. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. 
Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at Jesus' teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. So, Jesus dominating demons there. Mark 3.11, who had that one? Does that not make you think of what we learned about in the book of James? The demons believe and also shudder. Profession of faith, recognition of who Jesus was, it's not enough to enable a person to be saved. Mark 5. And this is probably going to be where we have to leave because we are getting close to the end of time. We'll read this last passage. We'll pick off or pick up right where we left off next week at Roman numeral 5. But let me just read this text before I close this in a word of prayer and allow us to get over to the sanctuary with enough time before corporate worship. Mark 5, verses 1 to 20. They came into the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. What a illustration that is. Verse 6. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to Jesus, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter into them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis 
what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. You know what? I think if I was an unbelieving business owner and I just saw 2,000 of the best pigs run down the side of a cliff after having demons go into them, I'd probably tell Jesus to get lost too. <laughs> like if I was an unbeliever, like, dude, you're ruining our business and you're freaking everybody out. Like, you got to go. Um, anyways, that concludes our lesson for today. We're still maybe barely halfway through the scriptures that we have to read about the evidences of Christ's divine nature. So Lord willing, during our time together next Sunday, we'll pick up right where we left off and we'll go through the rest of the scriptures and the rest of the corresponding evidences for the divine nature of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But for now, let me close our time with a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed to corporate worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is so encouraging and spiritually enriching to see the deity of Christ set forth in sacred scripture. And Father, we know we've barely scratched the surface of not only the passages that are contained for us to review here in our forerunners of the faith curriculum, but also, Father, all the passages from Old Testament to New Testament that proclaim and portray the deity of Christ, we've, we've barely even gotten to the foothills of that mountain. And God, I just ask that you would continue to enlarge our faith and create a hunger and a thirst within our heart for truth and for righteousness so that as we come to your word and as we study about Jesus and his glory as manifested in scripture, that we would be encouraged and that we would be transformed more into his moral character, that we'd be further sanctified as a result of meditating on these rich truths we've considered together from your word. I pray now for the rest of today that it would be pleasing in your sight, that you'd give us rest as we prepare to worship you with all of your people here at FBC Edna. And as we prepare to begin a new week, may we be good stewards of all that you've called us to account for, all that you've entrusted to us, Lord, with our gifts, our time, our talent, our treasure, our families, our relationships, everything that you've given to us, Lord, may we do it all and manage it all for your glory. We love you, God. We thank you for this time together. We commit the rest of this day to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.